Hello, and welcome to the Slow Style Home Podcast. If you don't want a cookie-cutter, generic home, and instead you want a beautiful, meaningful home that's layered with personality, then you are going to be so inspired by the conversations we have on this show. We talk about why the environments we create matter and how to set up our rooms to evoke specific feelings and experiences that are right for you wherever you are in your life right now. I'm Zandra, your host and creator of the Slow Style Home Framework that teaches you how to make really thoughtful and informed decisions about your home rather than chasing current trends that may not last or staying stuck with rooms you hate, feeling overwhelmed with too many choices. Right now, when you join our monthly membership, the Slow Style Society, you'll get a personalized deep dive into your vision of what a dream home looks and feels like. And together, we'll come up with a plan on how to achieve that. If that sounds pretty awesome to you, go to slowstylehome.com and click on Join the Society for all of the details. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later on. Right now, let's just jump into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Style Matters Podcast, brought to you by Little Yellow Couch. I'm Zandra, your host, and I am so glad you're here. This show is for all of us who want to deepen and expand our understanding of what it means to create a home. Homes we can build that aren't perfect, but they are beautiful, soulful, and meaningful. One of the questions I get asked the most is, but how do I even know what my style is? I get that. You're looking for a starting place. Or maybe you're coming up against that question because you're having trouble mixing it all together, especially when you've got a lot of different styles that you've accumulated over the years. If so, I invite you to download our free style guide. In it, you'll see that you don't have to lock yourself into one particular style category to create a cohesive feeling. What you need is a new working definition of how you're going to represent yourself throughout your home. What you need is a mashup of several different elements of design to get you started. I'm constantly tweaking and rethinking this guide to make it more and more useful. So I hope you'll download it and use it and then let me know how did it work for you to grab the free guide just go to our website littleyellowcouch.com and click on the free style finder button right at the top you know when you first meet someone and you just know right away that you're going to find everything about them to be delightful That's how I felt in talking with today's guest, Aldous Bertram, and I think you're going to find him to be just as charming as I did. He's written his first book called Dragons and Pagodas, a celebration of chinoiserie. Now, in case you're not familiar with the term, just think about white porcelain dinnerware, the teapots, the vases, the lamps, that they all have uh, elaborate, vaguely Chinese illustrations on them. They're often done in blue on white, but they're also done in jewel-toned colors. You've seen it everywhere, I'm sure. And to most eyes, it seems a bit formal and a bit fancy and, and of a different time period. Now, I love all things old and antiquated, so I have nothing against chinoiserie. But honestly, 
When I first heard what the book was about, I I was expecting it to be written by some old guy whose entire life was centered around a very narrowly defined interest in blue and white porcelain flower pots. Well, all this is nothing of the sort. First of all, he's young and good looking. He's also a scholar and an artist and a designer and a dollhouse maker. He does a lot of these things because he's simply a passionate person who follows his curiosity. My kind of guy. And the book itself, by the way, as an object, it's anything but old and stuffy. It's really quite gorgeous. Now, like any good historian, Aldous makes the telling of his subject, which traces the hundreds of years of the development of the chinoiserie style, and then goes into the different um, the different major tropes and the, the major themes, the major styles within the chinoiserie style. He traces all of that in his book, but he makes it read like a novel. So this episode, it's going to be good. Okay. One more word before we dive in, and it's about this episode, which is to say that it is wrapping up our current season. So we'll be back in a few weeks with all new interviews, but you'll want to be sure you're subscribed to the show so that you will get a little notification when you open up your podcast app and say, oh, there's a new episode of the Style Matters podcast here. Now, I say subscribed to the podcast, but I think Apple Podcasts is now saying that you follow the shows that you like. You don't subscribe to them. Whatever. It means the same thing. Just click to follow, click to subscribe, whatever app you're using, so that so that you know when when we start up again. And, And it'll be in a couple of weeks. So anyway, I don't know why these tech people always have to go changing everything on us. Every time I open up my computer, my phone, it's like the operating system is new. It just drives me crazy. Anyway. Just be sure to follow or subscribe. (laughs) Okay, here's my conversation with Aldous about his book, Dragons and Pagodas, A Celebration of Chinoiserie. Aldous Bertram, welcome to the Style Matters podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Thank you very much. I am very honored to be here. This is my first podcast. It's very exciting. Well, Um, welcome to the world of podcasting. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to talk about your beautiful, uh, really beautiful book, Dragons and Pagodas, A Celebration of Chinoiserie. But before we do that, I had to do a little digging to find some stuff out about you because (laughs) you don't talk about yourself in your book. Um, And you've had a you've had a, a little bit of a. Um, a windy journey in your career path. I have. Yes, you're you're clearly deeply passionate about uh, our aesthetic experience of life. Um, But and you follow your curiosity, which I think means you're having a life well lived. But you've had some trouble figuring out what you wanted to do, how you were going to get paid. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you got to the point you're at today. Yes. Okay. So absolutely. Um, the, the production of this book is actually something that I'd wanted to do for a really, really, really long time. And it's oh. actually come back a little bit full circle to, uh, the last point in my life when I was really settled, which was at, uh, Trinity College, Cambridge University, which was actually getting in there was actually my lifetime goal <laughs> and my ambition and career. Right. So, and you thought when, you were done. Like, I okay, thought I was I'm, done. I'm 18. I, I'm here. Yeah. I like, didn't have a plan afterwards. <laughs> so all I did was come up with ways to stay there longer and longer. <laughs> so I was actually there about nine years total. 
Uh, the first three doing a, hist- a normal history degree. Uh-huh. Then one year, uh, it's called an MPhil. It's sort of a preparation year to do a PhD. Okay. Um, because in England, a PhD is then only three years long. So that's three, uh, oh, then okay. one, then three. Then for a year, I think I just didn't hand it in because I knew if I handed it in, then it would be over. And I lived relatively nearby at that point. So I did another year or so there. Um, Then, okay, so then because there was big mistake was then having no life plans. So I sort of, um, I think I was working in the uh, alumni office of the same college that oh, I'd been right. at. So I could keep socializing yes. with the same people and my <laughs> same patterns. And it was such a beautiful uh, um, college. So everything was right. going great. But then I was suddenly thinking to myself, okay, so this this is just it then. You'll just be here forever. <laughs> and I think you might get bored. So, um, So then I was like, Okay, it's not too late to do the things you refuse to do when everyone else did, the internships and the work experience. So as you mentioned, you know, passionate about aesthetic things and beautiful things, but not really in a sensible way. So I sort of jumped around thinking, well, what's beautiful? Where can I work? So I think I I interned at um, House and Garden magazine. Um, So that's like something that's beautiful, but... I, you know, I just wasn't prepared for it. Like I did the internship and I was fine, but everyone's expecting you to have wanted to have a certain career for a really long time and be (laughs) super dedicated to that goal. (laughs) Whereas I was just kind of experimenting. So I I did that. And then I, um, for about a year, commuted to London and interned at Sotheby's Mm -hmm. um, to try and get into antiques via the auction house route Mm -hmm. but I weirdly found it very terrifying everyone's very (laughs) smart and confident and all spoke six languages and I I don't speak any languages and it turns out you can't work at Sotheby's or Christie's without at least one so um somebody who I'm actually a really important really nice person who I need to actually send the book to took me into their office and said all this, you're 30, you don't speak any languages, you're an intern, I think life might be passing you by. And I was like, oh, that's mean, but maybe that's right. So some tough love there. A bit of tough love there. So then I decided I needed like a complete shakeup. So I applied for a job uh, as a, um, well, okay, let's, let's be honest, it was a manny. But it could be okay. also described as an amazingly qualified international tutor. So Very, I like that better. Let's go with that. <laughs> yes. So so it was good. You did have to have lots of various uh, academic backing and things. And um, so anyway, I took this job in the, in the Bahamas. And basically the importance of it was that it really took me out of my comfort zone. And because all of those internships I was mentioning, I was still living at my parents' house and commuting back, and that's right. a stone's throw from Cambridge. So it wasn't really enough of a fix. So I shipped myself out to the Bahamas, and um, and I'm a tutor for about six months, um, during which time the next-door neighbor is Amanda Lindroth, who has currently employed me for the last seven years and really was my saving grace and, and complete fate. Um so I sort of, I showed her some of my watercolors and 
it was just we just got on so well and she said you know come and intern with me uh, at her Bahamas office which I did for about three months and that was fantastic and I began to think to myself okay well you know interior design is an absolutely fantastic way of uh, expressing oneself creatively and working yeah. with beautiful things and you know this is a a major interest of mine but it wasn't it hadn't been a plan prior to that um so but I, it fit. The pieces it were fi- fitting. It, it fit, but it wasn't mm. quite the end of the story. I mm-hmm. then had to go home again to England. I didn't have any kind of visas or anything. Um, and then Amanda, you know, maybe it was six months later, phoned me and said, okay, I need to do a huge mural in Palm Beach. And I know you can do tiny watercolor paintings. So surely... You can do a gigantic mural. What's the difference? What's the difference? I absolutely refused, but she insisted. No, well, she insisted that I fly out there and we went to look at it. And she said, you know, she's so generous. She just said, just give it a go. And if it's terrible, we'll just paint over it. So, I I mean, so I did. I went out there for. It must have been about 90 days or whatever the limit is you can do without a visa. And right. I I painted this uh, big room in Palm Beach, which is actually in the book in the last chapter on on the tropical theme. And we uh, we took a sort of chinoiserie theme and I, I, did, I pulled it off and it miraculously got into House Beautiful magazine, not just for the mural. It was the Amanda's genius in the apartment, but uh, it was still in a magazine. I was still so, so proud. And of course. during my time there, I just sort of said to Amanda, you know what you should do? Give me a full-time job as an interior designer. <laughs> That's exactly what she <laughs> In <should>. America. So, <laughs> and then we'll get and a visa. And sponsor me. And yes. sponsor me. <laughs> and all of those things happened. And... Then yeah, I had a I've had a series of visas and now a green card, always doing the same fantastic job as um sort of designer, project manager for Amanda. Yeah. Really enjoying it. Uh I was in Palm Beach for about three years, Bahamas for a year during some kind of green card wait, and then Charleston the last two years. Yeah. So that brings me to today. <laughs> oh, wonderful, and you you didn't mention this, but you you said you started uh, when you started your first your 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 college degree. It was yeah. just straight history, but then you did start. I mean, that's where you first started learning yes. about decorative yes. arts. So and- it was it was straight history for the main undergraduate degree, but then the the subsequent postgraduate years were uh, more in the history of art department at Cambridge mm-hmm. and. Um, That topic was Chinese influence on English gardens and architecture in the 18th century. It has to have that very long title because it was a PhD, but. (laughs) So full circle, like you said. Full circle. So then then I came back to it and, and my, um, my professor at Cambridge, Professor David Watkin, who has uh, sadly passed away since, but I've dedicated the book to him because he, uh, you know, we, we learned about this together and he was my tutor. And then he w- would always very kindly try and suggest my work to academic publications, which always turned me down because I was never, it, it was, it, it was, it passed as a PhD. I will say that, but it was never going to make me 
a lifelong academic uh-huh. uh, in that sense. So I always used to joke to him, you know what, this would actually be a great coffee table book. And he would laugh and I would laugh and think, actually, I'm being deadly serious. So uh, <laughs> that was not a joke, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, part, so, of your, part of your modest, uh, uh, the modest part of you is it's not, doesn't say Dr. Aldous Bertram. And it, it doesn't. Should. Yeah, it doesn't. It only says that on my debit card. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I think it's because it just confuses people in as an interior designer to get an email that right. says Dr. Aldous Bertram. People are like, have I emailed the right person? Yeah, um, I can see that. You yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. I, I've dropped it in my American career, but gotcha. I, I might resurrect it at some point. You know, well, whenever you need it, it's handy. You can look exactly. it out of your pocket. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. So I want to jump into the book. Um, you know, chinoiserie. To me, being being a casual student of interior design, not a professional, but someone who just is passionate about it, obsessed with it, chinoiserie is something I'm very familiar with. I, I could identify it, but I don't think I could have described it, and I certainly didn't know the history of it. I, you know, I kind of had this vague idea that, um, and I'm not going to spoil the story here, that because this is what you go into in the book, but but that chinoiserie was made up. Right. It was, yep. it was not from China. It was sort mm-hmm. of European or English ideas about what China. I, I, I didn't fully understand the picture. And then I read your book. And so now I know and I love it. So tell us, give us that brief history yes. if you don't mind. No, of course. I mean, as you just said, Shinwazari is definitely, it's just, it's not one thing. It's many, many things. And a lot of people today, don't are not familiar with just how many different facets of it that there are and also really the length and the breadth of its history and it it is a confusing thing and you know when I was writing those opening lines about what chinoiserie is it's always hard to define Mm -hmm. the word chinoiserie itself you know it's a French word and it tends to mean um Things made in Europe, inspired or in imitation of things originally from China or Japan or India. Right. Um, but it's, it is more complicated than that. Because as I say in the book, um, chinoiserie starts with a seed and the seed is imported things from Asia, real Asian things that come into Europe. And those are the catalyst with the unusual new colors and patterns and materials that captivate people's imagination. Mm. And because uh, uh, China and England or or Europe are so distant that you just can't, you, they couldn't keep buying. They had to make their own copies and interpret it in their own ways. So just to, to go back a little bit to the history, we have to think that In the past, although it's hard to imagine today, there is absolutely no link between Asia and certainly the Western parts of Europe. Nothing really Asian comes into Europe except maybe one small bowl makes it to some emperor of uh, of Austria. Sorry, you know, I make it sound really, you know, but uh, via Egypt or something uh, in the 1100, something like that, that would be it. It would be an absolute treasured object. Right. Um, and no one sees it. No one sees it. And then we have very famously Marco Polo uh, goes out from Venice um, 
in the 13th century and he miraculously sees the inner workings of China and he writes a fantastic book which already amps up the drama and the mystery because they wanted it to be a blockbuster you know I love it and, I love it and so uh not to jump around but that already makes chinoiserie slightly inaccurate and more fantastic already like they're okay. trying to uh fantasize and impress the audience with things that are more you know as overblown as possible um but then what follows Marco Polo is 400 years of of zero contact so there's nothing new added to the story until mm. the 16th early 17th century when we in Europe start to try and uh get a trade contact with mm-hmm. Asia so they begin to bring in more objects and um it's through Holland at first i think i mentioned in the porcelain chapter that Holland really takes over the trade uh, in a big way of blue and white porcelain. Yes. Um and so that is what Holland is famous for today. The they, Delft pottery. Delft, yeah, they imitated it whenever there was a dry patch in their own supply and they're now, you know, iconic for it. Isn't now, that funny. I, yeah. I just found that to be so fascinating. Um and 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 let me just interject one second. So you're talking about the Dutch East India Company here, right? Correct. Okay. Yes, which was a precursor to the more famous uh British East India East Company. India Company um, right. Yeah. So uh the the Dutch one had a monopoly um at first and we have to remember that por- Delft is not porcelain. It looks the same, but the material it's made of is is just not as good it's uh-huh. not as strong it doesn't have the translucent quality that porcelain does so we just really have to emphasize that when porcelain first came to europe how shocking it was they'd been eating off plates of you know pewter or wood and suddenly they have this material that it looks perfect it's delicate it's translucent it's painted miraculously it's not it, bumpy it doesn't no, it was you know your food doesn't a, get caught on yeah, it <laughs> it didn't taste of metal when you were eating right it was a um, miracle the it was an ab- is- it was a miracle and every it was briefly well i don't know how briefly but it was more valuable than gold at at the beginning wow. um it was it was just, uh, it transformed, you know, visual arts in a way, the cobalt blue color, mm. the patterns and the little images of Asian life. These were all new. And it's those other things, the colors and the, and the imagery, which then turned it from being just a fabulous object to inspiring people to think about life in Asia. And this looks so magnificent and exotic and different there's still no information other than these scenes that they're 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 looking at right so um it's the only it's the only glimpse they have into what the animals look like or the exactly new plants new animals new architectural styles new modes of dress new hairstyles new everything it goes in two two directions one they're displaying these great objects and two they really want to take these motifs and this imagery and develop what then becomes chinoiserie which is Mm -hmm. the imitated product and uh you know at the time i mean they would have seen some of their changes as improvements now we probably see them as in the other way like a (laughs) less well-made product and so you know changes are made and it 
it blows up from a, you know, a candlestick and a bowl with added handles to a room to display the porcelain, a room that's then decorated with friendly chinoiserie motifs uh, to enhance the porcelain to, oh, hey, I love this tiny pagoda on this plate. I'm going to try and build one in my garden. (laughs) You know? (laughs) This was the part of the story that really fascinated me was two things. We're talking centuries that this this, uh, fascination with this sort of magical India – in, yeah. uh, sorry, China, well, yeah. uh, all of Asia, yeah. um, lasted. It, centuries it lasted, number one. And number two, that each country then kind of reimagined it and made yes. it work for them. Absolutely. So it, it's a fashion that keeps kind of reinventing itself. We just are not going to escape from the fact that in Europe, which especially in the past had a less colorful uh, less variety of decor and dress. We're always going to be interested by the bright colors and the fabulous shapes and patterns that come from distant shores. You know, from a modern perspective, I, I, I was a little bit surprised at, at the how long this 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 obsession, this craze, has gone on for. I mean, centuries. Yes. This this passion for chivalry. It, it, it's because it transforms itself and it it adapts itself. It's because. It's such a free and open style. Chinoiserie is such a big umbrella that over time, people see it in so many different ways and develop it in different ways. And uh, geographically, they do as well. Europe, we see a very Rococo chinoiserie. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, In England, which at that period is usually at war with France and very set against <laughs> emulating France. Right. We never take the Rococo on. Um, so we liked um, aspects of chinoiserie and there are many different aspects to choose from, like the fretwork patterns and the bird and flower wallpapers fitted well with their existing quite square panelling uh, and simpler rooms, whereas on the continent, you've got far more experimentation with uh, curving panels and gold everywhere, and you can drip it with bells and put drip it. it. Yes, and I like the, just the, fabulous, fabulous. Yes, the the craze jumped from royal court to royal court. Royals love nothing more than what's new and flamboyant and expensive, <laughs> and no one more so than Catherine the Great, who is. <laughs> a great Anglophile and a huge fan of the French court and mm. fashions headed straight over to Catherine who doubled them in size. So Russia's, Russia's contribution to chinoiserie is just a bombastic scale, really. <laughs> and um, Sweden and Germany, uh, fabulous experimentation, particularly in the German courts, yeah. who are not constrained by the rules of classicism in Georgian England or the rules of, you know, Louis the 14th to 16th in France is very, very strict on Versailles dictates everything. Yeah. And you cannot just go wild. You have to look like Versailles and respect its rules. But the Germans, right. so many princes um, uh, across the, what is now Germany was many different places um, just took Rococo style and Baroque and threw chinoiserie at it. <laughs> and it's just like so many of my photos in the book are from Germany. And what's really interesting is someone messaged me the other day and saying, 
that they were enjoying my Instagram account because they didn't actually know that much about all the German palaces and the decoration there. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a hang up almost from the Second World War where, yeah. you know, we were very angled against Germany and we it's we did we learned at school as you know about the war yeah you don't learn about earlier german history and all the principalities and the holy roman empire and all the baroque palaces and i just keep wanting to go and go to different parts there's a palace every five miles it seems (laughs) and they're all full of chinoiserie i'm so in love with german historical design at the moment we'll be back after a quick break I assume you're here because you want a -a one-of-a-kind, personality-filled home, right? Well, in order to have that, you need to define and develop your signature style. When you do that, you're going to understand how to mix what you already have with new things you find, focusing on who you are and what you love, putting it all together in a cohesive way. So what's stopping you? Well, let me know if this sounds about right. Not enough time, not enough money, and a lack of creativity or design knowledge, which makes you feel overwhelmed and insecure about pulling the trigger and changing things up. This is why I created the Slow Style Society, to help you take action on making your dream home a reality. It's part social club for people who like to just geek out on design and part hands-on learning experience where you get better and better at making decor decisions for each room in your home. And for the next few weeks, I'm offering all new members an additional one-on-one style session with yours truly. So I'll take you through the lessons so you know exactly what to focus on inside the Slow Style Framework in what order, and you'll have a personalized support system from me to get you there. Go to slowstylehome.com and click on Join the Society so we can get started right away. Let's not wait for that imaginary perfect time to create your beautiful, meaningful home. Again, go to slowstylehome.com and click on Join the Society. Okay, back to the episode. I have to say, I, I Germany was a surprise to me too. I expected to see it in France, certainly. I, I yeah. of course, knew about it in Holland. I knew about it in England. You know, Russia was a bit of a surprise, but not the way Germany was a surprise. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think it's because I can't. I, I visited there in '93 or something, right after the wall came down, and it was like in my mind, it's all about uh, that. You know, kind of Soviet era. <laughs> really um, yes. utilitarian yeah. architecture, not yes. at all Shinwasari, but what do I know? I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's just interesting that how much more there is out there in parts of the world where, you know, you're, you're not expecting it. So right. I, I really wanted the book to just take Shinwasari to like a, just a new depth, not academically, but in imagery, just so people yeah. go further, travel further through this book than they previously have. Right. And see palaces and things that have not necessarily been widely shown. Um, right. And just see the sheer breadth of of styles within the umbrella of Chinoiserie. Yes. Well, like I said, you you do a, such a beautiful job with the history of it. It's I think the first two chapters, and it's uh, 
it, it's it it's very readable. It, I really appreciated that part of the book. And then the then the rest of the book, each chapter is devoted to a different motif that is pretty iconic uh, in Shinwasari. Yeah. And and that you know that a lot of the the imagery is what most of us would point to and say, oh, that I think that's what Shinwasari probably is. Your title, Dragons and Pagodas, they, yeah. they each get they each get a chapter. Yes. And um, but there's also Foo Dogs, there's the Phoenix, there's of course the florals which you talked about that were very popular in England and then came over to America. And you end the book on tropical motifs, which was my are my favorite. Yeah. But talk about making things up. I mean, yes. this is sort of to the nth degree by the time we get to the tropical reinterpretation of, of China. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. So tell us, why was that such a crazy? Like, what are we seeing yeah. here that's just absurd? Well, it's just, um, it, it's if you look at Shinwazari at the essential uh, root, which is sort of um, basically about China. Now, we know that it was about a lot of countries, but it was meant to be about China. But right. historically, the confusion of geography was was very extreme. Like that part of the world was not mapped out. And, right. Uh, Gosh. And really, um, in the 18th century, actually, a lot of things from China were described as Indian. A lot of things from India were described as Chinese. All trade really funneled through um, the Dutch uh, colony in uh, which is now Jakarta, which was called Batavia. A uh, very, very hot place, coral in the oceans, palm trees everywhere. So um, everything that is coming out of Asia, even the northerly parts, is going through this gloss of tropical, uh, well, a joy and fun at the time. It really, well, like people, you know, Europe is not a tropical place. That's one of the most exciting things about Shinwazari. So, so they wanted, they desperately wanted China to be a tropical place. They wanted it to be Jakarta only. Yeah. And at first they they didn't know that it wasn't. They assumed that it was. Um, (laughs) And porcelain is coming in on the same ships as shells and tropical artifacts and coconuts and things that are then sold in China shops in Paris and London, which are selling them all together. So, so you can see where the confusion comes totally from. You can totally see where the confusion is coming from. Yeah. Um, but also there was a deliberate act to keep China as a mysterious tropical place. I think I mentioned in the book that um, one of the, the embassies Holland tried to send to the Chinese emperor to say, hi, we have a little tiny bit of trade with your most southern port we would love to make it official. You know, Europe and the Western world has, you know, trading organizations and they thought if they just go to the emperor and give a load of presents, um, that they could be given special favor and much wider trading rights. Now, there were four such embassies in the 17th century. All of them achieved nothing. The emperor (laughs) received uh, the gifts from the Dutch and gave them no concessions. But what it did allow the Dutch to do was travel the 1,000 miles from Canton, the only part of China Westerns are allowed to go near, uh, all the way up to Beijing, which is then called Peking, yeah. and see the real China. On this Dutch embassy, there's a, a sort of travel log publication, much like Marco Polo's, you know, to, to really 
capture people's imagination. And in the imagery, the engravings of this book, the we don't know who added the palm trees, but palm trees are added to every single view of a Chinese city <laughs> right up to the north. Just to give it that special flavor. Right. Because no one in Europe is just has an appetite for accepting that China is a, just another country with si- quite similar customs at the end of the day. Right. That is right. not what people wanted to hear when they were loving their fantasy of all the colors and the palm trees. Oh, I could the imagine corals. them sitting around going, you cannot tell anyone. Yeah, you can't tell anyone. Out. And Shinwazari <laughs> eventually uh, only goes out of popularity when trade takes off and that results in, you know, conflict and war and there and people yeah. say, oh, China's just like anywhere else. Yeah. We're not going to do this fashion anymore. It oh, obviously gosh. comes back many times, but that's what killed it the first time, the reality. So, okay, so you've got in, in all of Chinese landscape, no matter where in China, someone might say it's coming from, they put palm trees, what else every, do they put in, in there? It, every tapestry, every painting, there's pineapples growing, there's bananas, there's coconuts there's coral in the corners monkeys are swinging from the trees there's parrots you know these are all the things Uh, that we do continually associate with shinwazari i i want to jump to uh, your own work as a designer um and an artist first of all i know you don't live there anymore in palm beach but but i did see have seen your home that you designed in palm beach and i was was really drawn to how you use adaptation to realize your vision. Um, And I'm drawn to it because I feel like a lot of people who listen to this, including myself, you know, you don't always have the resources to do the real, the quote unquote real thing, the authentic thing, right? So you kind of have to make do with what you have. Um, And for example, (laughs) you painted this very large hand on one wall yes. and uh, yes. uh, you didn't have an actual sculpture of a hand so you painted it yes. and then you also cut a table in half a, a, an oval table so you'd have these demi loon side tables and and you also used your, you tented some fabric in, in ways um there's so much whimsy in this the monkeys everything thank you yeah, yeah. it was it was a real joy to make that apartment um i had obviously come from england and i'm now in palm beach and in my own way, I'm enjoying, you know, the exoticism and the tropical nature of the surroundings. Right. And I'm, I'm really running with the colors of the pinks and the mint greens and everything that's wonderful there. And um, and I, yeah, I did, with the giant hand, like I've always wanted a giant sculpture. I've always wanted a full height niche. So I painted four of those on the walls to sort of trick the eye. Yeah. Always, I'm obsessed with what's called rustication, which uh, in Italian architecture is that the blocks on the outside of the building, um, you know, to make it look a bit like the buildings built up on rocks. So I, uh-huh. so my interpretation of that was, is those mint, sort of mint green lines just painted with tape and, you know, trick the eye techniques. Um, Tell us the hand came from a specific uh, yeah, the, inspiration. Uh, yes. Uh, the Capitoli Museum in Rome has various pieces of uh, the uh, Emperor Constantine. <laughs> pieces his of his foot, body. Yes. It has his foot next to his hand, <laughs> next to his head. And it's just so amazingly cool. Yeah. That I just, 
I just, you know, I, I'm obsessed also. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with Chinoiser. I'm also obsessed with, you know, Italy. Who isn't? And, well, right. You know, ancient classical things. So I just wanted to mix it all together. So that sort of, that room, my living room, was kind of my little bit of homage to, to Italian tastes and lemon trees and niches. And then my bedroom was my, uh, was dedicated to Chinoiserie with, uh, it went through many iterations. Do not think that I was struck with this great vision and then I painted it and it was great. I painted over it many times. It looked terrible through a couple of the things. And actually, um, it's so funny. The bedroom had initially this bamboo pattern I'd painted all over the whole room and Ooh. then taken a photo and sent it to a stylist who was going to propose it to be in a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the magazine accepted and they saw the real photos, the stylist said, uh, what happened to all that amazing bamboo stuff that you painted over? And I panicked and I had to then up, my, the, up the ante and I then stenciled that caning on the ceiling and <laughs> painted these like little white and gold trees. And I was like, oh my gosh, why did I paint over that? Right, I, right. You just, you wake up one day if anyone out there is is creative in any different form, you wake up one day thinking you've had the best idea, you painted the best thing you've ever seen, the next day it's the most embarrassing <laughs> thing you've ever seen. Yes. And you, it's got to go. So, I've had I mean, so many of those experiences. Yeah, yes. that's And I'm not like... a talented painter the way you are, so <laughs> yes. Um, yes, okay. And so the table, tell us about the table. Uh, the table, as with many things, yeah, it's another thing that where you when you – covet something and I've seen in a a much wealthier friend of mine's house this beautiful table uh well actually he had two like like I now do <laughs> he had two perfect side tables with that little scroll feet and I thought to myself "Ooh, what's that I wonder what that's called and I asked him like googled and it's some kind of like niche American empire style with that thick scroll base okay and then I I'm one day walking past this uh I think in America it's called a consignment shop rather consignment than a charity shop. shop. But yeah, yeah, in Palm yeah. Beach called the Church Mouse. Fabulous place. Most of my stuff came from it. And there was this table with the exact same legs. And I ran in there and it was falling apart, which made it very easy to separate into two, by the way. Yeah, and right. Great. It barely stands up. I <laughs> painted it with this gloss green. And suddenly I was just like... These are great. I'm yeah. sorry, but they turned out so great. They and it was really such did. a dirty old table, <laughs> which I got on a really good cheap deal. And it just <sighs> was exactly what I needed to pop against that pink walls in the bedroom. And I, I was thrilled. And you mentioned the little tented corridor. I love, love, love Indian block printed fabrics. And so I literally just nailed that up. That was all a trick. Um... <laughs> You can achieve so, so much with, with, in cheaper ways. Right. Um, and just, you know, it's, you know, I got that fabric on Etsy. You just, it's, it's, it's shockingly cheap. It shouldn't be that cheap. Right. It shouldn't be. Exactly. Yeah, it it's beautifully made. Right. Uh, exactly. Um, so I just had a lot of fun with that apartment. And now I don't, I, we have to talk about two, two of your other sort of, well, one's like a little side project, I think, and the other is a big part of what you do. Yeah. The little side project being doll houses. Yes. And did, is past, that true that you... A past career I forgot about, which was a very short-lived... Well, actually, it wasn't a career. It was a hobby I tried to make it to a career and failed. 
Um, well, you've got but, one where there's every room represents a different design yes, era. So oh that, my gosh! Yes, that was a 15-year endeavor. Um, my dad doesn't approve of watching television unless you're doing something at the same time. Okay. So I started sort of making little things. Um, I visited um, when I was about 15 Windsor Castle. There's something called the Queen Mary's Dolls House there, which is by far the most superior doll's house in the world. It was designed by Lutyens, the famous architect, and the books in the library were written for the doll's house library by the oh. famous authors of the day. So Rudyard Kipling you wrote a story. No, me. Wrote a new book just to be printed in miniature for the library with 300 other authors. Oh, famous my gosh. Ar- famous artists did the portraits. Um... The taps drip, tiny drips of water. The elevators work. Um, everything's real marble, real gold, everything. Crown jewels, real diamonds. I have no idea. You can't okay. make it up. And back to your comments about my Florida apartment, I want to own things which I cannot. Now, if I make them in miniature, I semi-own them. Right. So, <laughs> I get um, the link, yes. Yeah, so, and, and I'd always loved interior design and different periods of decoration so this house this miniature house allowed me it has something like 20 rooms to uh be creative to 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 make things to study historical interiors um and to collect tiny things on my travels and it was such a fun thing to do so there's a a tudor like great hall there's a (laughs) big baroque uh ballroom there's a uh, there's a chinoiserie bedroom, which is actually at the back of my book in the very last few pages, where the the Chippendale chair rail is actually matchsticks painted gold. Oh. I don't know if you saw that, but have a look again. I love that picture. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at it right now. I had no idea. Oh, thank you. That was the aim. By the end, like they almost look like real rooms if photographed right. It absolutely looks like a real room. Wow, that is so cool. And uh, yeah, you know what? You're like one of those people that now I can have a good answer for when when they say, "If you could invite ten people to a dinner party from any era of time, who would you invite?" You'd be one of them. <laughs> oh my gosh! Thank well, be, you so you're much. You're just so much fun, and you have such a breadth of curiosity, and 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 um, I just love how you dive into things so deeply, and 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 don't, and and you're still kind of funny about it, like you're not. You oh, know? thank you. That is an incredible compliment. Thank you um, so much. Well, I, so now I want to talk about one last thing before I ask you my final signature question, which is your watercolors. Now, this is not just a side project. This is something that you do you know, pretty seriously, and, and I know that they're for sale. Um, yeah. You do other artistic work as well, um, but these watercolors, yeah, they're, um, they're, they're gorgeous. Thank you so much. So I, I have a... I do watercolors in a couple of different ways uh, for my job, which is as an interior designer for Amanda Lindroth. I paint uh, renderings, as we call them, to help clients see how the room will look. And then as one of my side projects, I try and paint various things that inspire me. You know, it's a lot of it is chinoiserie influence, yeah. uh, botanical things, some interiors, I think they are beginning to represent a style that might be mine, but I'm never sure. Uh-huh. And like a lot of artists, I do, I, you know, I copy a lot of things. Like I, I'm not trained in it. I, sometimes I have to copy something exactly and I'm not 
trying to claim, I will never claim that my artwork is a masterpiece of art, but what it, what I do think I like about my things is like the composition and the colors. So my, my favorite one is like a little lemon tree and I know a lemon tree doesn't look like that. It's, (laughs) I've made it more stylized and whimsical whimsical with twisty leaves. And that's actually an influence of, of Asian and Indian and Chinese painting to stylize nature so yes i i have um prints of those paintings for sale um on my website i need to mention them again on my instagrams i've been focused on the book which is my big excitement of the year but i uh, i actually am thinking of i've sort of done some new paintings uh based on the chapter headings of the book and the front cover and the back cover and i want to launch those and i think that could go down well because oh, I mean almost yes. I mean I, I will say that like I change all the time my my style a little bit during the making the book I decided to come up with these watercolor chapter headings which I'm so so proud of and it really did change my style uh, a bit and huh. I, I I think I want to you know make those available because they're they were so much fun to design and paint and I do think they contribute to the book I was just going to say they add so much to the book that they're 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 just it's what makes the book there's so much um so much fun in this book I mean even the side guys even the sides of the pages are red so when the (laughs) book is closed and it matches the red fretwork that's that's the background to the cover I mean it's just such a beautiful book um uh and I thoroughly thoroughly love having it in my hands um, Thank you. So, okay, let's wrap up with yeah. my big question about why does style matter? And um, if you need a moment to think, that's fine. Yeah, no, because I I know this is your uh, this is your signature question. So I sort of tried <laughs> to think about it a little bit in advance. It's such a hard question. I it's, know. And I actually, my initial answer is the exact opposite of my revised answer and so I have to submit both answers yes please do so first of all I thought I was going to say that style matters really most and only to the to an individual you know and Mm -hmm. that aesthetic beauty and collecting things that you personally find uh fit your style and are beautiful to you is all that matters and it makes your little world at home a happy and inspiring place and you wear the things that make you happy and project that image of individuality to the world that was my initial answer okay. to important to the personal joy that you get and then i thought to myself hang on a second <laughs> this question of individuality that we celebrate so much today which is a wonderful thing is such a novel concept and I thought to myself will the last 70 80 years be remembered as an era of a particular style and it won't because we all do our own thing we all have access to everything we want we take from whatever historical style we want we we focus on trying to get our personal look and so it's all different. So what, what will a historian say, you know, about us? Will, will we be remembered like those great homogenous styles like Louis XIV, right. 15th, 16th of Versailles? It's all the same. It's fabulous. And it's a look. And it's only a look because everyone copied it and did it. So interestingly, I actually, my second contradictory answer is that style matters as a group event, really. Huh. 
and that um, historically great styles have to be done by a lot of people. So whether uh, which answer you prefer, whether we all have to copy each other or all be individual, I don't know. Ugh. And that's the joy of life. There's no right answer. But right. your question is genius and it really got me thinking. And uh, that that's my haphazard response to it. <laughs> I love that. And and it exactly I think that these I I think that having all these different perspectives even in our own heads <laughs> is is really interesting and um just gives me a lot of joy to just think about this stuff but more joy to talk about it with other people. So thank you for both of those answers. Uh, and your second answer in particular is really giving me a lot to think about. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Well, I mean, literally, as I said at the beginning, this is my first podcast. Uh, being asked questions like this is, you know, it's it's a challenge, but it's so fun. It's so good for me to really, org- I mean, we all have so many different thoughts and inspirations. Sometimes you just have to organize them because there's a podcast, and, you know, <laughs> and it's yes. so helpful. And I'm so grateful to have come on here and uh, being guided to these answers by someone as kind and experienced as yourself. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for that compliment. It's been just a delight. Well, that wraps up our conversation for today. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to download the free style finder, the free guide at littleyellowcouch.com and get started on your signature style today. Uh, Also, thank you so much to all of you who have left reviews and ratings over on uh, Apple Podcasts or in all of the other uh, podcast players. It really, really does make a difference. So if you haven't done it, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few minutes and just give us a review. All right. I will be talking to you soon. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening. I know your time is valuable and I really do appreciate you spending it with me. And please, please, please take a minute to leave a review for Slow Style Home wherever you get your podcasts. It honestly does help keep this show on the air and your feedback is highly valuable to me. Have a great day and I'll be back in your earbuds soon. Bye for now.